Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen, where I am delighted to be joined by Robert Lacey, author of one of the most talked about royal books of the year, Battle of Brothers, William Harry and the Inside Story of a Family in Tumult. And it is publication day today, Thursday, although this is Wednesday when I'm talking to Robert. And we are joined on the phone in the end today after we had a few gremlins with our little video call. So we've managed to make it work. And Robert, I'm delighted that you've been able to join us. It's very exciting to have you with us. Thank you, Anne. I'm honoured to, to be pod-saving the Queen along with you. Oh, tremendous. Um, this book, how long has it been in the making for you? Well, in a sense, it's been in the making, um, what, 40 years or so, the time I've been writing about the royal family, because although obviously it focuses on these two brothers, so dynamic, so attractive, and now so for the time being, at least, tragically separated. Um, it, 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 it's also a book about um, the circumstances and the history that produced them. Um, thus, it looks very closely at the 80s and 90s, those terrible times that we thought um, as royals were over and done, and now the chickens are coming home to roost because these two boys, in ways that we can discuss, I think are very much victims and products of those troubled years. And then, in a, in a third sense, um, it, it, it looks at the, the whole function of the modern monarchy, um, uh, which plays such a wonderful role, I think, in the life of this country. Clearly, the press coverage it gets, the public interest that is devoted to the royal family, shows that despite the scoffers, um, and they're quite entitled to their scoffing, um, the monarchy, um, presses buttons in people's minds and hearts in this country. It plays a very important role, particularly at a time of um, disconnect and discomfort like the present. Um, and so um, I also try to show in the book the way in which um, the royal system um, has treated these two boys in different ways. Um, I would say William has been more tre- kindly treated than Harry has been, but that has always been the fate of despair. Harry um, follows, sadly, in the tradition of Princess Margaret, of Prince Andrew, um, as number twos in the system, um, who are treated harshly by the logic of the royal system, which actually favours 
the main bloodline. And when they're young and born and young and, and, and children, the spare is always so close to the center of things. And it's their destiny through life to be pushed ever outward. Um, in technical terms, of course, down the line of succession. Um, from Harry being right next to um, William in the succession, he's down to, what, six, seven, eight or so. Um, and um, so it's all these different aspects um, that I've tried to bring together in one book, and I look forward to discussing with you. We'll be looking forward to it as well. So when the when Harry and Meghan dropped their bombshell announcement in January that, yes, this was it, they were off, it was all going to be different, no more senior royal roles for them, and they had this grand plan of um, developing a new working royal role – how how did that news fall with you? Was it a surprise? There'd been sort of, you know, talk over the last, uh, probably the previous 10 months maybe, that things were gradually falling apart a little bit and separating of the of the two houses and, and so on. But it's still, for many of us, for it to get to such an extreme place quite so quickly in January, I think, was a, was a shock. I think it was a shock to everybody. Um, um, you know, the, the, the Sandringham Summit, as it's become known, um, wasn't how the Queen planned to spend her new year at Sandringham. Um, and um, as, 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 as I'm sure you know, Anne, and as I relate in the book, um, Harry and Meghan um, were actually um, planning to sit down with um, the Queen and the rest of the family and sought out their wish to um, be different sorts of royals um, and to um, take up the idea which came from the Queen herself um, that they should live in a Commonwealth country. Um, I mean, so far as we know, um, you know, here we are towards the end of 2020. These events we're talking about happened um, at the beginning of 2020. Um, and it would seem that a year before that or so, the Queen realized that things were going wrong. Um, she brought in her former private secretary, Christopher Geith, um, particularly trusted and experienced figure, to help um, um, uh, Meghan and Harry in the whole situation. Um, they devised this plan um, along with Sir David Manning, um, who had until then um, being a sort of mentor to the two princes. Um, and they came up with this idea that I call in the book Commonwealth Strategy, which seems to have derived a lot from the Queen's own experiences in Malta, um, when Prince Philip was serving in Malta at the, after the war and before um, um, the Queen so unexpectedly came to the throne. Um, she, I don't know if it's her idea, but she's certainly credited with saying that she thought that the experience she'd had in Malta um, served herself and Prince Philip, um, well, then the Duke of Edinburgh, of course, um, um, as a very good preparation um, and a sort of relief from the royal scene. Perhaps um, Harry and Meghan would benefit from the same. Um, with that suggestion in mind, they went on their tour to Africa um, uh, last year. That was the tour on which, of course, at the end, they gave the interviews that revealed to the world what some had suspected but couldn't quite imagine was true, that there, there was some sort of 
divergence of paths between William and and and, and Harry, um, and um, um, that you know that was where the story continued. You mentioned Christopher Guite, and it was reading that that aspect of it that made me kind of think of. You know, we look, we look at it and it's kind of shiny and happy and they're, they're opening, you know, opening schools and visiting places. And that's the kind of royal presentation and the grand weddings and trooping the colour and all that kind of thing. But actually, behind the scenes, there is a bit of Game of Thrones and power play and all sorts going on when you've got Charles and Andrew kind of ganging up to get rid of the Queen's trusted, you know, trusted um, helper. And it then sort of coming back to, to bite them, really. Well, um, there's a ruthless logic um, um, behind all the sentimentality and, uh, and warmth and uh, good feeling that the royal family tries to engender and usually engenders with some success. And that's, that's a very important part of their job. But you know, the, the line of succession is um, a ruthless and unforgiving thing. And um, uh, uh, I think... What we saw at the beginning of this year with the Sandringham Summit was the Queen digging her heels in uh, a very determined fashion. Well, we'd seen actually before that, of course, um, the Royal Christmas broadcast where mysteriously the, the picture of, of the Sussexes that had been on the Royal desk the previous year had vanished. Um, there was no mention in the Queen's broadcast of the word Sussex. Um, she did mention her and welcome her eighth great grandchild, but she didn't say the word Archie nor Sussex again. Um, so clearly, there, there was there was suspicion building up inside the family and uh, inside the palaces um, about um, what this project of Sussex Royal that um, Harry and Meghan were launching was all about. Um, and um, uh, the Queen, when it was all put down on the table in January and discussed uh, at the Sandringham Summit and then in the days afterwards, um, um, was absolutely not prepared to allow the Sussexes to attach the concept of royalness to themselves. Um, um, while they pursued their their plan of living abroad, um, it's slightly ambiguous at the moment. They are, as we understand it, HRHs um, uh, as much HRHs as they've ever been, um, but they don't use the title, and the palace doesn't want them to use that 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 rank. And as we understand it, although it's one of the many uncertainties that lie ahead for 2021, this situation. This ambiguity is going to get resolved in a royal review um, next March, um, when apparently the Queen, um, uh, Prince Charles, and Prince William will sit down to decide what's next. Um, um, we shall see. It's one of the big question marks in in, in what lies ahead. And you, you talked a little bit earlier about them being sort of the product of their upbringing. Do you think it was inevitable that William and Harry would end up 
separating to to this extent or that Harry would end up leaving the royal family behind largely or do you or how much impact do you think Meghan and the very different life that he could see with her how how much of an impact do you think those two different pulls on him had? Um, well looking back it's easy to wise after the event and um, one could in a way that it, it, we can now see that there were factors there that made it tending towards inevitable. I can't claim that I saw it coming. And I think you're um, quite right, Anne, to point out the crucial role that Meghan has played in this. Um, as we know, because he's actually said so, Harry doesn't like what's happened being called Mexit, because he's actually said, for the record, um, this was my decision, not my wife's decision. Um, Having said that, there can be no denying the the impact that Meghan has has made on Harry's life. Um, and depending on your point of view, and there are many points of view, I'm sure, um, um, well, we know out there, um, um, the, the, this impact was certainly positive from the point of view of giving Harry um, uh, a new sense of purpose and direction. Um, he enjoyed this for a period in the military when he had what he regarded, quite rightly, as the great privilege of actually serving in active duty um, alongside his comrades. Um, that, that was a fruitful period in his life, having had to retire from the armed services with age and so on. Um, he, he was looking for new direction. Megan um, supplied it which I think both of them, well, we know both of them feel that um, this new direction is the way ahead for him, that it has been at the expense of the royal family since so many of his aspirations have turned out to not fit in with royal convention. And I think there's something as well where if you go through a very powerful experience together. So for these two boys, they obviously lost their mother in such tragic circumstances when they were very young. And anything like that will always have a very bonding experience. And, you know, they have talked about it saying to essentially each other is the only one that understands what that is like. But sometimes it can almost artificially bring you together when naturally you would be quite different characters going in in different directions do you are they are they very different people as well as having very different roles within the family do you think um yes and and um and you're you know you you mentioned roles within the family um one of the things i think i've uncovered in the book and try to um, um amplify and explain it's is the way in which um, their roles in the family and in an institution have actually shaped their characters. I mean, from uh, I, I was able to talk to people who were who are older people now, but who were quite close to the boys when they were growing up. I mean, protection officers, um, nannies, and so on. And um, and you know, there are very good biographies of these young men by writers like Penny Juner and Robert Jobson, whom I greatly respect, um, and who've done their own research, on which I have drawn, and I'm very happy to acknowledge um, the help that their previous research has, has, has given. 
But there does seem to have been quite an interesting character shift by these young men um, in their early years. I mean, we are, from what we can tell, William was the rough and tumble um, young boy. Um, and Harry was relatively quiet, the, the thumb sucker, until um, um, around the age of four for Harry and six for William, they came to be understand or start to understand their future roles in life. Um, and um, that was, it was a very well-known story told by Ken Wolfe, uh, the bodyguard of how at the age of four, Harry was misbehaving in the back of the car. He was told off by the nanny at the moment. And he said, well, I, I don't have to be good because um, I'm not going to be king. So here at the age of four, um, Harry's future role in, as a spare um, was already affecting his behavior and how he saw his role. We also learned that as he started, as he went away to prep school, William had become a much more sober, serious young man. So here is his future destiny affecting him. And the, and the, and the big theme of the, of the book is the way in which the, the storms and travails of their upbringing had opposite effects on the boys, how William took consolation and strength from his future responsibility. It's all was crumbling around him. He knew that he had to keep himself strong for what lay ahead. So that um, when eventually he goes to university, falls in love with, with Kate, um, he takes his future role so seriously that Kate has to wait, um, proverbially, and as we know, for nine, the best part of 10 years, um, while William makes sure and she makes sure that the role of consort is, is what's right for her. And I think most judges would say that um, the result of that has been very satisfactory and positive for the monarchy. Um, in William and Kate and their family, we have the classic sort of heirs for the future that we expect the House of Windsor to produce. Um, we're not quite sure as we look ahead what we're going to make of the fairly brief reign of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Some of us are not at all sure what we feel about it, but we can all concentrate on um, Kate and William and look ahead. Um, and, and, and they, you know, they are clearly doing their duty. And that's what um, uh, William has, that, that's the, the purpose and the goal that William has derived um, from his own troubled upbringing. Harry, it would seem, has come to an opposite conclusion, that um, they were both the products of um, um, an unhappy marriage, definitely arranged, um, maybe loving to start with, but soon becoming loveless because of the, um, the role that Camilla played, as, as Diana said famously, three in a marriage. And um, Harry's conclusion has seemed to be that, right, I am going for love, unlike my parents, that's what matters to me. So he's made no secret. In fact, he's rather proud of the fact that he, he, he fell in love with Meghan um, almost instantaneously. And that has been his guiding light, self-realization through love. And this gives us this classic uh, battle, um, confrontation between the values of love versus duty. And that's why in the book I compare the present situation to 1936, to the application. Uh, in 1936, these conflicting um, strands and, and, and tugs of love versus duty were 
embodied in one man, Edward VIII, who resigned to become Duke of Windsor. In our day, we see we see this embodied in, in two brothers that we had once thought were inseparable. Um, and I think that the, the, the fact that these issues and values um, are involved makes this much more uh, an issue um, that goes beyond personalities. We're looking at the, you know, the essence of what being royal is all about. Um, and um, uh, that's why I think we, we need to study this closely, those of us who certainly see the role of the monarchy as important in British life. And I must just plug to any of our listeners who didn't catch at the time our episode with Alexander Larman, who wrote The Crowning Crisis, where we discussed more fully the Wallace Simpson situation and the abdication a little bit earlier in the year and obviously played out the echoes with Harry and Meghan as well. So if you didn't catch that at the time, do look that one up. Um, I think one of the things that came through quite strongly for me as well in the book was Harry almost being the flypaper where all of the bad stuff that is going on is sticking to him so that William can kind of emerge or, or be, be kept as on that pedestal. He is the future king. We need to keep him sort of safe and well and in good shape to be our next king because Charles has had all of this drama armor and people aren't quite sure about him and, and because you do want to look up to the monarch. So whether Harry was almost the full guy sometimes or allowed to be exaggerated in that role to allow William's sort of goodness to shine through more more strongly. I know you, you kind of talked about the Nazi uniform incident and the, can, the cannabis area, those kind of areas. And it's just made me think, actually, that, that is a really difficult dynamic to have in a family. And in all my years of studying the royal family and writing about it, I've never heard them compared to flypaper. But I think that I think that's absolutely brilliant. I think it it, it does describe very well um, the role that Harry was condemned to play, and all the spares have been condemned to play because, as you say, it's very important um, for us. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I don't think we should cast too much blame on the royal family. They are simply doing, as you rightly say, what we want. We want a perfect um, heir um, and family, just as we want a perfect monarch. And if the price of that, the cruel um, logic of it that we've already discussed, is that there has to be a fall guy, as you say, then that's the role for Harry. And as I describe in the book, um, moving on from their childhood um, as adolescents, um, they're, they're living in, a lot of the time, they're based in Highgrove, Prince Charles' um, home uh, in Gloucestershire that he chose to locate so curiously close to where um, um, Camilla lived. Um, uh, with his time away, he allowed the boys, I'm sure even those familiar with the story will know this well, to, to turn the, the, the bomb shelter underneath Highgrove into a sort of discotheque nightclub which was called Club H after High after Highgrove. Um, scruffy sofas around the walls, and dark paint, um, loud music, and a bar. Um, and who's in charge of the bar? Well, it's elder brother William, um, uh, two and a bit years older than Harry. And it's it's William who basically sets up this whole party scene um, uh, that involves 
um, other young people who are largely older than Harry, who is drawn into a world that's really too early for him. And he succumbs to it. And yes, um, you mentioned there the, the episode of um, what was called in the, in, in the news of the world today, Harry's drug shame, um, when um, he admitted to having uh, used um, cannabis um, and the even more infamous Nazi uniform occasion when he went to a fancy dress party um, with a swastika on his arm. And um, of course, you know, when he went to choose his costume, he went to choose it with uh, William. And both brothers were involved in their choice of costumes. Uh, um, William was a leopard or a lion. We're not quite sure what, but we know that Harry was dressed as a, um, one of Rommel, Rommel's Africa Corps. And they went to the party, both of them laughing together. Um, and uh, because someone stole a picture at the party that got published, Harry got all the blame and, um, 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 William came out smelling of roses. And you're quite right. There's this syndrome, um, that, that we know from nursery rhymes. Who's the king of the castle? Well, that's William. Who's the dirty rascal? Um, that's, that's Harry. You can't have a king of the castle without a dirty rascal in a way. And, um, so Harry, um, we know in his teens, came to understand and start to um, see the downside of these stereotypes. Um, uh, there were apparently um, periods of no speaks between the brothers when um, Harry expressed his unhappiness and what was happening. And um, that is what's come to fruition in, in, in the present day with um, um, you know the the following you know that that first eighteen months or so of Harry being engaged and then married to Meghan, um, they became the royal rock stars. Um, they far eclipsed um, uh, the, the the public attention given to um, William and Kate. I'm not going to say the popularity because William and Kate have always remained popular and rightly so. Um, certainly in that. Um, period when um, Meghan and Harry were the new stars of the royal family, um, the, the rightful heir, William and um, uh, his family, were rightful heirs were eclipsed, and um, that's a very that, you know that that's I think been a very important element in the in in the breakup between the new between the two brothers. So what almost that. Harry got too big for his spare spare role inadvertently or consciously or subconsciously either the royal family or William himself was trying to put put them back in their place or not to that extent um and put back in his put back in their place yes i think there was an element of that um um, um ken wolf said to me that he you always got the feeling that I mean, I'm hesitating here because um, we know very little of um, William's personal feelings about this. Um, one of the interesting aspects of this battle between the brothers, which I draw attention to in the book, is um, how, despite the deepness and strength of the rift that's driven them to opposite sides of the world, they have been 
remarkably close mouths and loyal, really, to each other. Um, you know, when there's a, when there's a suggestion of um, bullying, um, which one newspaper threw out a few months, uh, put out a few months ago. Well, within hours, I mean, I remember it was before lunchtime that day, there was a joint statement from both brothers drawn up by their offices um, together. But um, clearly, um, both brothers um, denying this absolutely, showing that when it mattered, um, they could speak to each other and they could take quick action on to squash something that um, they disapproved of. I mean, William did not want to appear a bully. Harry did not want to appear someone who had been bullied. And more significantly, both of them, with their interest and involvement in mental health, um, wanted to eliminate that very ugly suggestion um, from the picture. So, and again, sorry, it sounds as if I'm plugging my book all the time, but you know, on the back of the book, um, you know, I quote what Harry said in that momentous interview he gave to Tom Bradley in Africa. We are brothers. We'll always be brothers. We are certainly on different paths at the moment, but I will always be there for him. And as I know, he will always be there for me. Um, uh, that expresses um, a fundamental loyalty and commitment to each other. I think it's interesting that so far as I know, I stand ready to be corrected. William has never issued any such public statement like this. Um, William has not even um, acknowledged um, the fact of the rift. Um, he is said to have said, this has been um, attributed to him by a friend, that you know, I can't put my arm around my brother anymore. Um, um, he's off on his own path. But um, that's, as I say, you know, as, as the expression goes in the press, reliably attributed to him by a friend. But William himself has not said it. Um, and so in this, I see some grounds for, for hope in the future that um, they, they do remain fundamentally committed to each other. And maybe this could be the basis of some sort of reconciliation. But um, I, in the, I, I think there has to be some sort of um, resolution of the status quo. But what it's going to be, I don't think anybody can guess at the moment. Do you think there was a key moment which led to Meghan and Harry's decision to be, to say, okay, enough's enough, we are going to do this on our own? Um, well, um, they have said, and um, I would agree, um, uh, and I think others would agree, that the birth of Archie um, had a big effect on them. Um, they are just as serious about their parenting um, as William and Kate are. Um, and um, there's a very telling story um, of of how um, Harry was interviewing the great conservationist Jane Goodall um, just about the time that Archie was born. Um, now, now here itself is something interesting. You know, bottom of the class, Harry laughed at as a dunce, um, um, the court jester. Here he is interviewing this eminent. Um, female David Attenborough, I hope that's not demeaning, but I'm, I'm making a deliberate comparison there to the recent contact we've seen between um, William and David Attenborough. He wanted to introduce his own children to the great environmentalist that we all love. He's almost a member of the royal family himself, David Attenborough, with a sort of physical touching, laying on of hands. And 
Harry, who was helping his wife with her controversial Vogue, special issue for Vogue, was interviewing Jane Goodall. He brought her to the house, Frontenal, I think it was, to actually touch the little baby. And the, the, the great anthropologist said two things. First, she should sense instantly that um, Harry uh, Archie sorry, was unhappy out of his mother's arms. And she went to, to give the baby back to Megan. And, but before she did, she, she took his little arm. And as an anthropologist, you know, who, who studies the royal family almost as a weird species of um, uh, ritual, um, which, of course, in a way it is. Um, that's the role it plays in British life. She, she waved his little arm to and fro and said, oh, well, of course, this is one of the things you're going to have to learn for the future. And like a flash, Harry said, no, he's not going to be brought up that way. Um, but whereas Princess Anne somehow found a way to bring up her children as not royal or nominally non-royal, um, inside the setup, um, it contributed to Harry and Meghan um, moving out of the setup. And uh, I think, as I say, it is something to do with the rivalry. It comes down basically to the rivalry between the brothers. The fact that, uh, you know, certainly with um, Meghan by his side, um, um, this town was too small for the two of them. And um, that's one of the reasons why they've now put an ocean between themselves. We've talked obviously a lot about the brothers and their different characters and the different roles for them. Given in some ways how different they are and their different expectations, it was probably inevitable really that they would end up with very different wives. And even the way that their wives came into the family with kind of Kate's long courtship and Meghan's more whirlwind romance, again, that is that is very different. Were they treated differently by the royal family when they were first kind of welcomed into into the firm? Well, and I would agree with you, but also disagree with you. Um, um, let me start by saying why I disagree. Uh, I think there are very strong similarities between um, Meghan and um, um, Kate. Uh, they're both very determined, um, independent women um, who support their partners strongly in a sense that might seem old-fashioned, but which is also very modern. Um, you know, we, we know, and I explore it in the book, um, the fact that Kate was not entirely happy to be kept waiting on a string by William just because he wanted to test her out effectively um, as a future queen. Um, she did refuse on one occasion to go to Sandringham for Christmas um, because she wasn't, um, he, he hadn't committed her. Um, he hadn't, you know, popped the question. She wasn't engaged, and so she, we are told, uh, made, it, made it clear that she wasn't going to uh, play the royal game until, you know, William made a commitment to her that he hadn't made at that stage. I think, as I say, both women respect each other very well. I think the stories of a royal rift between the women that started um, people's awareness that something was wrong um, were not soundly based, um, they probably reflected the fact that nobody could believe that the, I mean, it was a stereotype, you know, jealous women. Um, um, and uh, nobody wanted to contemplate the fact that the risk actually 
involved the men rather than the the women. Um, um, having said that, yes, they are very different. I mean, um, Kate is a woman, and I discuss this in the book, although um, it's not something she enjoys being aired. You know, she is someone who gave up a place at one of Britain's best universities, Edinburgh, when she heard that um, Prince William was planning to go to St. Andrews. And she delayed her education by a year, and she took the risk that she wouldn't get into this suddenly popular university so that she could be in the royal circle there. Now, um, that suggests someone who certainly um, had her own ambitions. Um, and um, if it's always been her ambition to be a Queen Catherine, good luck to her, because I think she's going to be a very good Queen Catherine when, when the time comes. But um, as you say, this is different from, from Meghan. Meghan is a young woman who, at the age of 11, took on Procter & Gamble, an American advertising agency, because they were sexist, in her opinion, in, in saying that doing the dirty dishes was the job of, of women around America. And at the age of 11, she actually got them to change their campaign to say people around America. Um, she's a, you know, Whatever we think of her acting abilities, she made herself a television celebrity. She made herself um, um, an independently wealthy woman. The royal family are all millionaires. She is the only one who has not inherited her wealth, who's made it herself. The royal family are all celebrities. But they've all inherited their celebrity, and they have burnished it and polished it with more or less success, reflecting their personalities. Her celebrity is something she created herself, um, you know, whatever one thinks of her. And so um, the bringing a celebrity in her own right into the family um, posed a lot of challenges, which I think now as we look back with the wisdom of hindsight, Buckingham Palace should have done more to anticipate. Um, and of course it is, ironically, we think this was the basis of, of William's suggestion to Harry that he should slow down a bit with Meghan, that um, bringing this independent figure um, with her very strong campaigning views on women's rights um, and social equality and change into um, a family that was not supposed to uh, get involved in politics, um, raised all sorts of questions. And um, um, if that was indeed the basis of his um, question mark over Meghan, then it's proved to be the case because um, um, she was welcomed into the family and into the system, but for a variety of reasons, which um, you know, I explore in the book, and I know that you have been exploring in Pod Save the Queen over the, the past weeks and months. Um, important issues, um, it, 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 they haven't proved compatible, and we're still faced with the challenge of whether some sort of reconciliation can be brought about in the future. Do you think the royal family could have done anything differently to keep the Sussexes and, you know, ride that wave of popularity and build them into part of the working firm? Or were their amb ambitions even too too big for the royal family always in some way, or, or Harry's desire to escape it too big? Mm. Um, and um, 
I think this goes right to the heart of the matter, and, and it's easy for us to be wise after the event. But um, as we look at what the royal family actually did to, um, or, or the royal machine, let's say. No, I think the family welcomed, uh, let's make a distinction here. The family welcomed Meghan very warmly and sincerely, and that affection was reciprocated. The royal machine didn't manage it so well. Um, um, we know there are fairly routine established practices now by which new recruits into the family um, are briefed and told about their duties and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, again, being wise after the event, um, I, I think um, Buckingham Palace should have sat down with her um, and, and offered more and, and, and said to this self-made personality, um, in the sense we've just been discussing, um, well, what would you like to do? What are your priorities? Um, uh, the least that this would have done would, be, would have been to anchor um, Meghan more closely into the system from the start. Um, you know, we know that after about a year or so, the Queen realized something was going wrong. That's when she comes up with this idea of the Commonwealth option. But that's after 18 months or so of things not working. Um, as I say, and that should have been what was done, we can now see right at the start. There might have been more of a chance. And you know, Meghan would have been confronted right at the outset with the conflict that broke down the arrangement later. Um, and um, uh, so in that sense, I think... Um, you know, just sending off the new recruit to Ascot um, to see the Queen opening the Mersey Bridge. Nothing wrong with opening the Mersey Bridge, but to, to play the role of the, the wife of a junior royal um, right from the start um, without acknowledging um, uh, um, her own accomplishments. Um, I think we can now see that's a mistake. Some will say, well, that just reflects the egotism of of um, Meghan, but I would say, you know, look at where she's come from, look at what she's made of herself. Obviously, you've got a big ego that goes with that. And if you're going to try and accommodate um, that ego into an institution where everybody is supposed to diminish their egos, then um, that requires more work right at the outset. I mean, but I, as I say, this is being wise after the event. We all just threw up our hands with joy when it started. We all entered into the spirit of celebration, and I can't claim myself to have anticipated the problems that have since occurred. We talked earlier about William and Harry being the only ones who knew what it felt like to lose their mother in the way that they did. In terms of Meghan coming into the royal family, the only person who knew what that was like, who was kind of who remained in the firm in that way, was was Kate. Do you think that? I don't know that more could have been done either by Kate or or by Meghan in terms of using that relationship to help make things work better or is that just an unrealistic expectation in the machinations of everything going on uh, i think again um that's being wise after the event and but it's a very constructive thought now um yes perhaps um that would have been one strand um 
in the the situation. Um, um, but um, you know, if we're thinking about what could have been done better, I think um, there should certainly have been a major sit down between um, Meghan and um, the private secretary um, at the time, or the private secretaries of the various palaces, um, um, to thrash out and explore exactly what um, you know Meghan wanted to do. Later, the Queen gave her the 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 the, the patronship of or the headship of the National Theatre, um, and it's very interesting, I think, how Meghan reacted to that. Um, uh, her first speeches in that role, her first statements in that role, were not to do with the glories of English drama and the English language and what it brought to the world and how proud England could feel about that. It was all about the need for the National Theatre to get more involved in underprivileged areas um, um, and to work towards social equality. Well, now, those are indeed um, um, worthy and important objectives that the National Theatre should pursue, but it's not the whole story. Um, and um, this is just idle speculation. But I can I can just imagine the Fab Four sitting down at the early meeting their early meetings together for the Royal Foundation, which they which they at that time shared, um, and various projects coming up to pursue. And and with Meghan all the time reverting to these topics, which for her are of a, of a semi-religious priority, um, women's rights, um, social change, um, going back to that time and time again. And um, uh, I am not decrying the validity of these objectives at all, but they're not the whole picture. And I think that was, if we're looking particularly at the split, split up of the Royal Foundation, one reason why um, probably both sides agreed, look, we we we've got different views of 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 what we should be doing. Let let let's split up and go our separate ways. Um, um, and it might have been possible to keep that under the royal umbrella, as we call it, but um, it didn't prove to be the case. The, the the split was too profound. You've been writing about the royal family for a very 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 long time, um, and you know very widely respected and well known. And how how has your relationship been with the palace in the course of writing this book? Well, um, frankly, um, my relationship with the palace has not been very um, warm for this book. I've got beside me here um, uh, uh, at my desk, um, uh, perhaps a little theatrically. I, it's not for the world, but for myself. I mean, I've got a package there, returned to me, unopened by Buckingham Palace, um, for my previous royal books. And I appreciate, you know, times have changed, but for, for the first books I wrote back in the 70s and then again in the 90s, um, um, I would be invited into Buckingham Palace. And I'm not, you know, not just me, other writers would be invited in. Uh, you'd sit down, you'd talk with private secretaries, press secretaries, you'd explain what you wanted. In the case of my second book, Monarch, um, I was given access to the Royal Archives. I, I spent months there um, digging out material, documentary material on the early reign of um, Elizabeth II. Um, and then at the end of the process, as a matter of courtesy, I would show um, um, 
Palace staff. Not the whole book. I mean, you can't expect them to do your work for you. But, you know, difficult passages, controversial, potentially controversial areas where I would want to make quite sure that they got their point of view across, even if I disagreed with it. Well, I, I started this um, um, th- this third big exercise um, on the assumption that the same um, would be the case. But um, obviously times have changed. I don't think telling them openly up front that my book was called Battle of Brothers did me any favors. It obviously set the alarm bells ringing. And um, um, I've, I've got here um, a very polite courteous letter from Buckingham Palace from the press office saying that this was not a book with which they would choose to uh, collaborate. So I've, 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 I've got no, I'm, I'm sad about that, but I've got no particular grievance. They've acted with total professionalism um, but it, 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 towards me, and um, I, I can't complain. And, and other writers have told me, well, times have changed. Um, it's a sort of tribute to the crown and the royal, I say the crown with a small C, not the not the TV series particularly, but um, uh, to, to the ever-increasing interest um, in the royal family, it's about simply possible for Buckingham Palace to help serious writers in the way that they, they used to do. They have an incredible body of work um, just to handle stories run through the national press uh, and media and, and, and internet every day. Um, so times have changed and um, we just have to adapt to that. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk this year about who exactly Omid Scobie and Karen Durant did or didn't speak to in the writing of Finding Freedom. Um, is there anything that you can tell us in terms of who the who the people were that you were able to speak to? Um, well, obviously, in this field, one you know one gives um, uh, assurances to close sources um, um, that you know they. Their identity won't be revealed. Um, I I did speak to people who've helped me in the past, who um, uh, either have been or are inside uh, the various palace organisations. I mean, this is a very murky area, and it's interestingly one which the brothers have come to understand um, um, and exploit for their own purposes. That the leak out um, of Stories, not through conventional channels, but um, you know, uh, people close to the scene say um, they learned about all this the hard way, of course, through what went on um, in their adolescence when um, Prince Charles's stuff um, were dedicated to making the idea of a marriage um, of Charles to Camilla acceptable to the general public. Uh, People have perhaps forgotten that when in 1995, um, uh, following the, the book cast that Diana gave on Panorama, which we've just seen covered rather well, I thought, on television um, in the last few weeks. Um, uh, as a result of that, one direct result of that was the Queen um, finally wrote to both Charles and Diana and told them that enough was enough. Um, other people might have said she could have come to that conclusion three years earlier, because three years from 1992 to 1995, you have this bizarre situation where Charles and 
Diana were officially separated. I mean, so separated, Prime Minister announced it in the House of Commons, but at the same time said, if situations made necessary, Diana could still become queen. Now, when you think back to that, that's absolutely potty. Um, and it's sort of institutionalized hypocrisy inside which our two particular subjects, William and Harry, were brought up. Separated parents, but not divorced because of the taboo that still existed in those days over divorce for the main line of the, of the family. And it was only, um, as I say, Diana's I mean, Diana is famous for coining the phrase, there were three of us in this marriage. But what she really did in that Panorama interview was to reveal there were four of them in the marriage, that she had had a lover as well. And that's what pushed the queen over the edge and finally led her to um, resolve the issue. Well, at the time that um, that was leaked in the papers by Camilla, um, um, we we know, um, um, at the same time, Prince Charles's staff let it be known that um, while he was going to divorce Diana, it's absolutely there in black and white in the newspapers at the time, there was no question of him marrying Camilla. He renounced it. It's part of the whole setup. Um, he would never seek to marry Camilla. Well, if he meant that for a day or so, within a month or so, he had hired um, PR staff, Mike Bo- Mark Boland in particular, and from the Press Complaints Commission, to mastermind a campaign there in 1995 to um, change public opinion and make it acceptable for him to marry Camilla. And it took a decade. And that was a decade of solid public relations work, part of which, frankly, I, I discussed it, certainly in my view, which I put forward in the book, involved the exploitation of both William and Harry in order to make Prince Charles look like a caring father um, and improve his public image. That, I mean, the two particular examples are the, the notorious Harry's drug shame story. Um, when um, the News of the World was persuaded not just to publish the story of um, um, Harry getting involved in drugs, but a totally false story that um, um, Charles had been so upset about this that he took or organized for Harry to go to a drug rehab. Well, it was true that um, Harry went to a drug rehab, but that was organized by another member of the staff, Mark Dyer, before Prince Charles knew about the problem. But the, the facts were spun around to make Charles look like a good and caring um, uh, parent, and the same thing happened with William at St. Andrews University. At the end of his first term at St. Andrews, he wasn't happy. He came home. He told his father he had what was later described as a wobble. He didn't want to go back to university. Um, and now, now in, in this case, um, Charles genuinely did play a role in persuading um, William to go back and, and stay the course. And of course, in the next term, he met Kate and that transformed his view of, well, he got to know Kate well. It seems that he had met her before, but in the following term, the relationship with Kate started. That transformed um, St. Andrews as an experience for him. But um, once he was back there, um, the Prince's PR staff decided that here was a good story to show Charles as a loving, caring father. So they leaked the story of William's wobble 
um, um, but how Charles had intervened to help him. Um, totally needless, because by then, William was back on track. So both, both brothers had early painful experiences of how leaking and the royal staff could uh, um, be very cruel um, in exploiting um, human stories for the sake um, of, of the royal cause. And um, um, these were certainly ingredients um, which, sadly or not, William and Harry themselves used. And now, you know, both of them have apparently friends who will put out stories that are helpful to their respective causes. We've we've done a lot of hindsight. Now we're going to look into the crystal ball with some foresight because you you know you've been observing the Queen and the House of Windsor over over the course of decades. So I'd be really interested to hear what you think will will happen next. We talked a little bit earlier about you think there may be a way back for the brothers to be, rebuild a closer relationship. Do you think there's any way back for Harry to kind of, or for the Sussexes more generally, for Harry to go back to his military roles? Do you think the Queen will be clipping their wings when it comes to the 12-month review over, you know, in terms of how things have been unfolding so far? Or what what happens next, I guess, is the question. Uh, uh, I used to be hopeful and optimistic about this. Um, I am less so now, um, and I think that um, uh, the two uh, interventions into uh, public opinion that, that, that Harry and Meghan have made recently um, with regard to the American election and then regard to Black History Month, um, they haven't helped. I mean, I think uh, if you actually study what they've said in each case, um, Professor Bogdanor, the great constitutional expert, has already said that um, uh, he's studied what they said about the American election. Uh, and in his view, the fact they said that um, um, uh, it's everybody's duty, A, to vote, and B, to vote for decency, was not in itself partisan. But it became partisan. Um, and I think the, the uh, perhaps over-protective partisan pugnacious reaction of the palace establishment to that has also made things worse and and made a reconciliation less likely. Well, whatever comes next, we will be following it closely, I'm sure. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Robert, and I do hope that we can have you back on the show again in the future, whether to talk about a future book or other interesting things that are happening. But, um, you know, thank you very much for sharing all of your insights on the Battle of Brothers, William, Harry, and the inside story of a family in Tumult, published today by HarperCollins. So thank you very much for joining us, Robert. Thank you, Anne. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I know I did. You can see Robert on Twitter and on Instagram. He is Robert Lacey with an EY underscore com on both those platforms. And you can find us at Podsave. We will be there over the next week and we'll be back again next week with another episode. We ran out of time today to fit in talking about what Meghan and Harry were up to over the weekend for World Mental Health Day and International Day of the Girl and all sorts of other things as well. Wildlife photography competition with Kate looking amazing again and that stunning picture of the tiger. 
Plus, the royals continue to be out and about, apart from that bit when Sophie was self-isolating. So we will look forward to catching up with Daily Mirror royal editor Russell Myers next week and bringing you all of the latest royal news. So find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter at PodSafe and stay safe, stay well. And until next time... PodSafe the Queen! Podsafe the Queen!